Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bible, James chapter 1, the passage that was just read in your hearing. Thank you, Megan, for reading that passage to us. And now we're going to feast on these three verses together. If you are a guest with us and we've not had opportunity to meet just yet, uh, my name is Jordan, serve as our lead pastor, one of our elders here, and we are just delighted that you are with us today. You picked a great Sunday to be here for a number of reasons, one of which is because this is a very, very practical set of verses when it comes to dealing with what I am calling the solicitation of temptation, the solicitation of temptation. Pray with me, and then we're going to hop in. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We're grateful that we can open it up, the bread of life, and be able to feast. Oh God, would you come by your spirit now, and would you minister, would you nourish, would you challenge Would you correct, Uh, would you do a transforming work in our hearts and our minds as we consider something that we all deal with, which is the solicitation to temptation, that temptations are all around us, and there are multiple responses that we could have. I pray, God, that your word today would show us that you know the best way to respond to temptation for you are the one who became a man, Lord Jesus, and as we've sung about, that uh, you conquered every sin, not only in your life saying no to every temptation, but ultimately dying upon the cross, and all of the sins of your people were laid on you, and so, God, you broke the power of sin by conquering it, and we too can walk in victory over the most deceptive of sins, because we are in you and you are in us. So would you convince us today by your word that we must remain dependent on you? The only other option is to depend on ourselves or something else, and that will lead to death. So God, may you use your word today. Help me to not speak anything that would be outside of your will according to your word for the glory of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by describing to you a number of scenarios. I imagine all of them will resonate with you because all of the scenarios I'm about to describe to you all have a common thread that draw them together. Officer, it wasn't my fault. That guy behind me was driving so fast that if I did not speed up and break the speed limit, he would have run into me. Well, I know I'm not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, but by golly, God gave me these urges. Doesn't he want me to use them? Honey, I would never have had one too many drinks, but my friends pressured me. And what would they have thought if I would have said no? All the guys would have laughed at me. It would have been so embarrassing. Now listen, Lord. The only reason that I lusted after that woman is because she works over in accounting, and she wears the tiniest, skinniest jeans I've ever seen in my life. Yes, Your Honor, I did steal the money. But you need to understand something. That woman that used to be my boss fired me for no reason. My family has to eat, 
we had to have some money, so therefore, that's why I stole the money. I would never use profanity. So the fact that I got angry and cursed, if she wouldn't have called me a bleeping you-know-what, then I wouldn't have called her a bleeping you-know-what. Yes, I know that I've eaten to excess. I've eaten way too much, but I had a really hard day, and I just needed something to eat to make me feel better about myself, so I ate, and I ate, and I ate. God, you could have healed me if you wanted to. So the fact that I got angry at you, and I cursed you, God, you have no one to blame but yourself. I didn't want to go over the credit limit on my credit card, but it was a flash sale on Amazon, and it was on sale, and I needed it, and I didn't know when it was going to be on sale again, so I bought it. Yes, I committed adultery, but I have needs, by golly, and they weren't meeting them, so I took things into my own hands, and I got my needs met. Yes, teacher. I did cheat on my test, but you gave us no time to study. Your demands are way too high, and my neighbor's paper was leaned over just perfectly for me to see. Yes, Mr. IRS, I did cheat on my taxes, but it was for good reason, after all. You keep changing the rules every year. Who could keep up with them? I trust that you see the common thread. In every situation, it is the idea that somehow something other than ourselves is responsible for the behavior, namely the sinful behavior that we often pursue. The message of James 1.13 to 15 is very simple, and I put it on the screen. When you and I yield to temptation... We have no one to blame but ourselves. You should write that down. When you and I yield to temptation, you and I have no one to blame but ourselves. Not God, not the devil, not your mom and dad for having raised you in an abusive and dysfunctional family, not your spouse who is hangry, and has a bad attitude, not that person who hurt your feelings because of what they said or didn't say to you, not the person in traffic that cut you off, not the grouchy person checking you out at the grocery line, none of those are the culprit for why you and I sin. The buck stops with you, the buck stops with me, and the reality is the ultimate problem that you have with you is you. You is your biggest problem. You are your biggest problem. And it is you and you only. It is me and me only when we succumb to the solicitation of temptation. We can try to pass the buck. We can try to evade it. We can try to diminish it. We can try to dismiss it. We can try to give some other excuse of why we have just sinned. But what James is going to, in very graphic terms, remind us today is you and I have no one to blame but ourselves. Now, as we approach this text, 
James 1, 13 to 15, it is worth asking the question, why does James shift here? Why does he shift to temptation? If you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you know chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, he deals all the way to where we left off last week, chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 12, and he's been dealing with trials, tests, outward things that needle you, persecution, financial struggle, job challenge, parenting problems, marital struggles, sicknesses, disease. Remember back in James 1-2, he says, uh, consider it pure joy when you face trials or tests, for you know the testing of your faith, and so on and so on and so forth. That word that he uses there, multicolored, means Trials comes in all shapes and all sizes. So if it's hard, if you want to throw the towel in, if it's difficult, whatever it is, could be a person, like your child could be sitting next to you, just kidding. Could be a number of trials that you have. Whatever the trial is, God says, according to verse 12, that you need to remain steadfast underneath it because in the midst of that challenge, friend, God is doing something. He's building spiritual muscle in you. And, and as He keeps putting plates on the, on the bar and you keep lifting up, as you pass the test by His strength and as you ask Him for wisdom to get through that, He's building strength in you. So things that used to get you and make you not even want to get out of bed in the morning, now you actually get out of bed. And then you finally got out of bed, well, they didn't, you didn't want to go to work because it just caught you. But now you go to work, and then you didn't even want to go to that person at work because they get on your nerves, but God has given you stamina to look at it with proper perspective. God has given you wisdom. God has given you a heart for them. So now look what God's done. You got out of bed. Hallelujah. You went to work. Hallelujah. You're now loving a person that you are just want to strangle them some days. God is building stamina. And so, if you would have bolted and said, I just need to get a new job, you never would have learned that. I'm not saying sometimes you don't need to switch jobs. I'm just saying sometimes our knee jerk is to get out of stuff rather than stay underneath the trial. And that's what this passage has been about. Remain steadfast and let God accomplish His work in you. But now James shifts to temptation. The question is why? Well, I think it's pretty obvious when you think about it. Because when you're under external stress, there's often great temptation to sin. For example, you may be in physical pain, and nothing is seeming to work. Nothing is giving you any kind of relief, and you just can't bear it anymore, and you are tempted to reach for the bottom of a bottle, to reach for an illicit drug, or like I said, to reach for food to make you feel better about it and, and overeat and overindulge. Or it may be you're single, and that's a trial, man. It is. I, was, I thought I was going to be a bachelor to the rapture. Hello. It was a trial. And yet, the temptation in your singleness could be to seek sexual immorality via pornography or via some other illicit way to meet the legitimate need that God has put inside of your body and inside of your mind, your emotions, your will. But that trial, if you're not careful, if you don't stay under it and ask God for wisdom, how do I navigate through my single so I can be a spiritually satisfied single, then you'll be tempted to go find your own way. Or maybe as a parent, your kids won't listen. Any, any parents there? Kids just won't listen. And that trial has just about got the best of you. And if you're honest, you've had to repent as a mom or a dad because sometimes you discipline out of rage, out of just 
flat-out anger that is ungodly anger, and you, the Bible says, Ephesians, you've provoked them to wrath. We've crushed their spirit because the trial of the situation, God wanted to teach us something in that trial of parenting, but our temptation was to now sin, or it may be financial pressure. I got I to gotta make ends meet. And so you cheat on your taxes, it is tax season, right? You cheat on your taxes and so you can get more money so that you can make it through and you tend to justify it in your mind, well, we got to eat like the, the person. So what James is pointing out is very crystal clear. Trials come from God. There's no doubt about that. Trials come from God. Yet temptations, impulses to sin do not come from God. They come from you. They come from me. And that's the point he's going to make today. So three things. If you have a bulletin on the inside is an outline here, and I'd really encourage you to write these things down. On the back are our connect group questions, and I would encourage you to interact with those sometime this week. But I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 13, there is a source of temptation. Here's the source. We're going to talk about the source, the force, and the course. First of all, the source of temptation. Notice, let no one say... When he is tempted, notice when he is tempted. Remember chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 2? Consider it joy when, not if you face trials. And now he gets the temptation and he says, when you are tempted. And notice James, I think here, friends, is really drawing these two paragraphs together. I think Verse 12 was the end of a paragraph, and I think verse 13 is the beginning of a new paragraph in the original language. And I think what he's doing here is he's drawing this idea that you are going to face trials. There's no doubt about it. When you do, and when you face a trial, and when, chapter 1, verse 13, you want to be tempted or you are tempted, he says, make sure that you do not say, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Now, God's character guarantees the truth of James' statement. The chief attribute of God is God is holy. God is love, God is this, God is this, God is this. What undergirds all of God's attributes is the fact that God is holy. And what James is doing here is he is saying that God as the holy one, as the perfect one, he is unaffected by evil and so he is unable to cause someone into evil. Remember, this is a temptation sometimes when we're in a trial. We begin to blame God as a means of justifying our sinful behavior and our sinful actions. And that's why James brings it up, that you need to be careful, brother. You need to be careful, sister. When you're in the heat of the battle, don't ever say that I'm being tempted by God. So there's nothing in the divine being. There's nothing about God that evil can attach itself to, which means there's nothing in the heart of God that would want His children to sin. And this is extremely important because the human inclination from the Garden of Eden to this day is to blame shift. The reason that you want to blame shift and want to pass the buck and want to say it's your boyfriend's fault or it's your wife's fault or it's your boss's fault or it's whatever, your, sex, your fallen sexuality's fault, whatever, you, you, you want to point to that and that goes back to the garden. Because 
Do you remember how it played out with Adam and Eve? After they ate the forbidden fruit, Adam said, the woman, you, highlight, exclamation point, bullet, the woman, God, that you gave me. In other words, it's Eve's fault for giving it to me, and it's your fault, God, for giving me Eve. That's what he was saying. It's, your, it's, your, it's Eve's fault, but actually, God, it's your fault, because you're the one who thought this whole thing up and gave me Eve. God then turns to Eve, what is this that you have done? And she said, the serpent, he's the one who deceived me, and he's the one that I ate. Or, as it has been said before, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. So don't blame God. Don't blame your heredity. You can't say, my mom and dad were such a bad example. They may have been. I'm not diminishing the fact that your mom and dad were not the best mom and dad. I'm not diminishing that. But it does not give you the right to justify your behavior today. You may not have had a good picture of what a dad was, but your sinful behavior as a dad today, you can't call upon, well, that's how I was raised. That's how, what I saw. That's how my dad did it. Well, your dad was wrong. Your mom was wrong. If they, dis, if they in an ungodly way, then they're wrong. And you're wrong too, and you're doubly wrong for blaming your dad when actually the issue, friend, is with you and with I. So don't blame God. Don't blame your heredity. Don't blame your fallen sexuality. Well, I was just born this way. Don't blame your hormones. Well, I'm just in that season of life, and everybody just needs to get over it. Don't blame your hormones. Don't blame your testosterone. I have needs, and those needs better be met, or I will make life miserable until you meet those needs. Don't blame your fallen testosterone. Don't blame your addiction. Don't call your addiction a disease. Addiction is not a disease. Addiction is a sin. And if you call it a disease, then that means you can just go into autopilot and be like, well, I'm just at the whims of the disease that I have. No, call it what it is. It is rebellion against the living God. And unless it's dealt with that way, you will never overcome it. You'll just keep putting band-aids on your disease. And I'm not being mean. I'm seeking to be really helpful to tell you God wants you to be free from some of this stuff. But if you don't call it what it is before a holy God, then you cannot get free from it. So the source of our temptation is our own fallen hearts, friend. Don't blame shift. Don't blame shift. And certainly don't blame God. For God is holy. God, he, he can't be touched. He's unaffected by evil. So don't ever get twisted in your mind that God made me do this. So that's the source. Second of all, I want you to notice verse 14, the force, the force, but. It's a big but here. And the but here is in contrast to blame shifting. So don't blame shift, but each, every person, so we all face temptations, particularly given our trial. So if you're in a trial right now that's parenting trial, someone else in this room may not be dealing with that just given their lot in life. Or you may be a single, single widower battling sexual temptation. That someone who's 12 or 13 years old in the room, they don't know what that's about. But the reality is here is that every person given their specific trial, 
are going to have specific temptations to the challenges in the season of life that God has them in. Notice, and notice how this happens. He's lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, underline that word desire. Uh, the, the, the translators here go different on this. Some look at this as a desire being an evil desire. Some of your translations may render it that way, evil desire. Others, like the ESV, which I think is correct, does not put it here as some kind of desire, because I don't think that's what James is saying, and I think the translators got it right. This word desire is just a very general word, and it simply means to have a longing in you. There's a longing in you for something. And so, as we see chapter 4, verse 7, there is the enemy who's going to aggravate the desires God has given you. And he's going to aggravate you to meet those desires in an ungodly way. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want you to see here that the Greek word here for lured, see the word lured there? It literally means to be dragged away, to be dragged away. It was used to describe a fisherman. Any fishermen in the room? Fisherwomen in the room? Yeah. So here's the idea. This comes right out of the, the ancient world of fishing, which was a huge vocation in the early world, in, 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 the, in the ancient world. This was a very uh, pescatarian diet they had. Wouldn't call it that, but that's what they had. Uh, a lot of fishing. And so James wants to, to scratch them where they're itching, so to speak. So when he uses this word lure, the original audience knew, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. I think about that. I think it's like fishing. And as many of you are aware, when you fish, before you drop the line in, you cover the bait with some kind of hook. And that design, the design of the bait is to lure, right? To lure the fish away. And the bait is designed to scratch or awaken a desire in that fish to come after the bait, which is why any fisherman, and we're going to get this in chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to talk about the devil as the fisherman. But what will often happen is, is the enemy will uh, uh, figure the bait that you've been caught on before, and then that's why, you know, you look at fishing reports today, you check the fishing report, and you know, this is what the question you ask, what are they biting? What are they biting right now? If you get on the Rocky River fishing support, fishing uh, website, it'll show you, this is the bait to use, this is where to go, this is where they've made it to, and, and we, we've got a lock on them, like just go down there and put something in the water, something's going to happen. Because there, there's, there's game film. We know what they do. And we're going to talk about how the devil is like a fisherman in the sense of he knows you. He's got game film on you. He knows where you blew it in the past. So he's going to put bait out there for you that entices you the same way that you gave in before. But that, that's for another time. But, but when the fish bites the bait, the fisherman jerks the pole, snags him, he dies, and then most likely he fries, right? And so the luring away... Second of all, I want you to notice the word enticed. Now, this is out of the hunting world. It means to set a trap, to bait. When a person sets a trap to catch an animal, something as simple as a mouse trap. To catch the mouse, you have to first consider what entices a mouse. A lot of people use cheese, but that really doesn't, if you study mice, which I have, it doesn't really entice them. Did you know that mice are naturally seed and nut eaters? Hence, seed butter, nut butter is going to be the thing that will drag all those mice in your house out to the trap. 
So you set the trap, you wait, the mice smells it, it entices the mouse, the mouse loses all sense, he's got a beeline for it, and then wham. Now, this is why I think the word desire here is more general and not specific. Because you have desires in you that are good and godly. Where you sin is meeting those godly desires in an ungodly way. That would be a really good definition of sin. Meeting godly desires in an ungodly way. Meeting godly desires in an ungodly way. The desire for food is good. In fact, some of you have that desire right now because you skipped breakfast. But overeating and becoming gluttonous, not good. The desire for sex is good. But to meet that outside of heterosexual marriage is bad. The desire for sleep, good. But don't let that degenerate you into being a lazy, slothful person. The desire to exercise, go to the gym, eat, drink your green powder, all your stuff, it's good. But what's wrong is, is when you turn it into an idol, the desire to work is good. What's bad is when you begin to neglect your family because all you do is work. And you're, even when you're there, meant, physically, you're not with them emotionally because your, your mind's everywhere else. The desire to do well in all areas of life is good, to be excellent. But to the point of perfectionism, you're going to be a miserable person. So we must meet our godly desires in, an un, in, a, in, a, in a godly way. So let me ask you this question. And nobody can answer this really but you. How are you right now meeting godly desires in an ungodly way? How are you meeting good things God put in you? Desires. Desires are really not the problem. The problem is, is we're meeting them in ways that don't honor God. And you really need to spend some time considering that. Ask people around you who really know you. What if you ask your wife tonight? Ooh. What if you ask your husband? Honey, how do you see that I'm meeting godly desires in an ungodly way? They'll help you. I guarantee you they will. <laughs> or a friend. You've got to get to the root of this. You've got to get to the source of this. You've got to see the force in this. Third of all, notice this is the course of it all, verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, another way to describe this would be the cycle of sin. And he likens it here, we went from fishing to hunting, now to childbirth. And that's really the picture that he has here. There's two births here. First, desire and meeting it in an ungodly way. That gives way to sin. It's really the crux of then desire when it is conceived. When you desire, you meet it in an ungodly way, you're going to conceive sin. You're going to have a baby called sin. But the other birth is, gives birth to death. So the root idea of bring forth here is grabbing this idea of conception. And so this emphasizes this idea that an embryo grows to maturity very, very quickly. 
And, and sin in your life, if you don't deal with it quickly, then it will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It will give way. It will bring forth death. And ultimately, the way that childbirth will bring, childbirth will bring life, if you allow sin to run its course, I think the NAS translates it that way, let it run its course, then it will end in death. And he's not here talking so much about spiritual death or, or for the Christian or the unchristian, in my interpretation. He's just simply saying that the result of sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died spiritually. Now, they'll die later physically, but they died spiritually, separation from God. He kicked them out of the garden, and then later they'll die physically while their soul and their spirit will leave their body. Sin is a killer, y'all. It is a killer. It will kill you. It will clean your clot. It'll take you further than you want to go. It'll make you stay longer than you should have, and it will clean your clot. Don't play with it. Don't coddle it. The horror of sin is death. And, and here, again, he's not particularly talking to non-Christian or Christian. He's just saying death will end in sin. Now, please remember this. It is not a sin to be tempted. You need to remember that. It is not a sin to be tempted. What is a sin is when you yield to it. But, but we need to be careful here because we can sin by entertaining sinful thoughts. We can sin by entertaining those sinful thoughts, by letting them marinate. If you go read Romans chapter 6, Paul makes this really strong argument, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it marinate. Don't let it sit there. Don't entertain it. Don't coddle it. Don't pet it. Don't just be like, oh, you're, no, kill it. Destroy it. Mortify it. Or it's going to kill you is the, the argument. So, this is what Martin Luther said, which is so true. Um, we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, but we can prevent them from building a nest in our hair. And that is so true because there are things entertaining in your mind. Friend, when you have a sinful thought, you've got to kill it. You've got to ask God for the ability to kill it. Because if you don't, the thought will start going in down to your emotions, and you'll start to feel, and then one thing will lead to another. And like the mouse, all you see is, a, is, is, is peanut butter, and wham, you're gone. So, five quick things, okay? Five quick things for defeating temptation. Number one, or A, in your outline, know thyself. Know yourself. Do you know yourself? Uh, do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know where you are susceptible to shipwreck your faith? And have you devised strategies, boundaries? Have you put boundaries in place? We're all different. There's, th there's some in this room that certain things trip you up that don't bother me. But there's certain things that trip me up that don't bother you. That all of us, we have to know ourselves. I know myself. I know where Jordan is weak. I know when I'm in a situation where my weaknesses are exposed and I'm out of strength, I know Jordan really, really, really well. I've lived with him for 38 years, and I have been a Christian inside this body for 28 years, and by God's grace, I've learned, but I can still deceive myself, but I have learned, and friend, we've got to know ourselves. I'm so convinced that most Christians who are falling into all kinds of stuff, they don't really look in the mirror and consider their self. They don't consider their past. They don't consider their game film. They don't consider where they've tripped up. 
you need to identify where have I failed before? Because once you open yourself up to that world, you will probably be tempted in some way in that world for a very, 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 unless God wants to completely set you free from that, but you've exposed yourself, you've got a taste of that, and now when things get hard, you'll run back to that which you've tasted before. You've got to know yourself very well. When your routine changes, when you go on vacation, when you go on sabbatical, if you travel for business, when you get out of your normal routine and the safeguard of, of your normal nine to five, be very, very suspicious of yourself. Because that's when you will normally get out of the normal path of righteousness. So know yourself. Second of all, avoid tempting situations. In other words, don't flirt with stuff you know that's going to mess you up. Uh, write down Proverbs 6, 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? Answer, no. If you're the sort of person that is susceptible to the effects of alcohol, don't go to places that serve alcohol. If, if you're the kind of person who is tempted by sexual sin, don't watch certain things. Don't awaken your affections to certain things. Name the thing. Avoid those areas. Now, let me say this, all right? Let me say this, very, very important. Don't put your role on someone else, though. Because you have decided to avoid something, don't make it everybody's rule. That's called legalism. Because what will trip some people up, so for instance, if someone's like, I battle alcohol for a long time, so I don't go to a restaurant that has alcohol at all. I don't go, I don't, not, not just the bar, but if they serve alcohol, I'm not going there because it tripped me up before. Don't make that the rule for everybody else. That's not, if that's not seared their conscience, then they're free to go to Olive Garden, okay? So let's not make your rule their rule, but know yourself and avoid those areas. Be very, very careful to not put your standard on someone else. Very important. Deal radically. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, just have one eye, pluck it out. Right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Just have one. Better to have one arm, one eye than go to hell. Now, obviously, Killing of sin doesn't make one go to heaven, but he's just simply being hyperbolic by saying, be radical. Be radical with sin. Don't, don't just dismiss it. Don't call it, I had a struggle. Don't call it, I messed up again. No, call it sin. I've, re I've rebelled against God and deal radically with it. Third of all, keep the end in view. Keep the end in view. At the outset, temptation seems, oh, it just seems so good, exciting. You know, temptation never comes to you and says, would you like to destroy yourself? Would you like to destroy your marriage? Would you like to break the heart of your children? Would you like to defame the name of your God? Here you go. It doesn't do that. It just promises pleasure for the moment. You know, when Eve sinned, it didn't say, eat this. I'm convinced if it would have told Eve this, if it would, the temptation would have said, eat this, you're going to fight with your husband the discord in your marriage is going to, going to be so massive that your kid's going to kill your kid, and eventually the whole world is going to be destroyed because of what you're about to do, ma'am. It didn't come that way. You know, what the, you know what the lie was? You'll be like God. Well, who don't want to be like God? Well, obviously she did, and so she fell, and herein is the problem. Well, another thing here, surround yourself with people who will help you keep the end in view. You need more than your own eyes to walk right. Write this down, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates themselves pursues their own selfish desire. 
for they will reject all sound judgment. You need someone that you can have on speed dial or on texting or something where you'll call them. You, you, you feel Romans 6, sin reigning in your body. You call them. You say, brother, you say, sister, I'm in a vulnerable place with temptation. Pray for me. Talk me off a cliff, would you? I'm about to do something really, really, it's going to destroy my marriage. It's going to destroy my children. It's going to destroy and defame the name of my God. And will you remind me of all these things? You, do you have somebody like this? Do you have somebody like this? Do you? I know our hour's late. I'm hurrying. But this is so important. Got to have someone who will help you when you just see what's in front of you. Like, no, Jordan, get your eyes up. You see the end out there? You're going to destroy. Don't do it. You need that. I need that. We need that. And praise God for the people who've taught me off a cliff. Next one, plan to flee. Plan to flee. Now, this is really simple. But every day we face temptations of various kinds. Amen? We do. This is why I'm such an advocate of spending time with the Lord. Whenever your day starts, all right, if you're a night worker, then I know you're going to push back on this, but that's okay. Um, whenever your day starts, you need to spend intimate time with the Lord in His Word and linger with the Holy Spirit. Linger with the Holy Spirit. Linger with Him, asking Him to give you spiritual strength for that day. Awaken you to, to be on guard of different, behind every corner, the temptations, and ask Him to get your eyes open and be more sensitive and be more aware. I guarantee you in the mornings, if you'll start saying, Holy Spirit, make me sensitive to your prompting today. Make me sensitive to your leadership in my life today. He, he will begin to work in your life, and He will lead you, and He will keep you on the path. He will help you flee. And finally, this is, the, this is the most important one, seek the greatest pleasure. The power of temptation, friends, is a lie. You know what temptation comes to you? Temptation comes to you and says, I can do for you what God can't or God won't. I can do that for you. At the heart the power of temptation is a deceptive delusion, friends, and it's really sim it's as simple as one verse in the Bible. Because when your mind is filled with Psalm 1611, notice Psalm 1611 on the screen, notice it. If, if you'll practice this, if I'll practice this, this is your greatest deterrent to the desires that want to be met in an ungodly way. You make me know the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Friend, the only reason that you and I ever yield to a temptation, whether it's sexual, financial, arrogance, or whatever, is because we think that inside that thing will give us more pleasure and more satisfaction than God. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it, in the moment the devil doesn't want to make you hate God, he wants to make you forget God. Just forget him. And then you, you, you go off and, and you do that which God would despise. So, this is a big sentence, big sentence, but, it, but I really want you to get this. Perpetual fascination with the glory and beauty of God in Christ is your number one defense against the power and solicitation of temptation. Wonder at God. You could do all the other four things and still be in a, in a, in a, in a, in a great mess. And in that moment, if you'll wonder at the, the beauty of God, 
in Jesus for you, that will be more than enough for you to say no to sin and yes to Him. So I want to encourage you, memorize Psalm 1611 this week. Memorize it. And when you want to sin, you get that out and you say, listen, this, you, you talk to the sin in front of you. You tell, you tell no, you're a liar. You're practicing this, you're a liar. And you quote Psalm 1611. No, you're offering me life, sin, and you don't have life. I have life. God is my life. And I'm seeking pleasure at Him and His right hand. That's what I need. If you live that way, you'll begin to conquer sin and you'll do it on repeat. Now, finally, this is the way Jesus lived. He lived out Psalm 1611. He lived for the will of His Father. He lived for the Father's pleasure. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Read this with me on the screen. Would you read this out loud with me? Ready? Read. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So friends, temptation has a source, it's got a force, and it's got a course. And as you walk through the week ahead, if you and I will habitually dwell Psalm 1611, the application of that in the life of Jesus, then you and I will plead for God's grace in the moment, the beauty of God in the moment, and we'll be able able to say, Lord, I need you. And you know what he'll say according to Hebrews 4.16? Here's some grace. Here's some power. Here's some ability to say no to that and yes to me. What a God and what a glorious chunk of Scripture. Father in heaven, we all desire optimum joy. And you tell us that the fullness of joy is found in your presence. Lord, every heart this morning longs for pleasure. We all do. We all long for pleasure. But Lord, you alone have the pleasures that we're looking for, for your pleasures never end. And Lord, in our temptations this week, we are going to be confronted with all kinds of choice of whether we're going to meet the desires that you have given us in a way that honors you, or we're going to seek to meet them in a way that doesn't honor you. So would you help us, Lord, in those moments of, of temptation to remember you, God, to remember our our Savior, your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ too. For the joy set before Him went to the cross to die for sinners such as I. Help us be alert this week. Make us sensitive, Holy Spirit, to your promptings and your leadings. I pray for every husband and wife. I pray, God, for every marriage, for every grandparent, every worker, every single every widow, every widower, every person under the sound of my voice, Lord, as we wage war this week against our own sinful hearts. Help us plead grace, grace, grace. And God, we praise you that the power is ours in Jesus to say no to sin and yes to you. May the main deterrent to the solicitation of temptation be your beauty, God in Jesus, by the Spirit. Lord, we need you. We need you. 